Can we raise your hand? Where are you at? Austin right there is one of the guys that's coordinating the, the, um, the conference for the youth. So if you have any questions, please direct it to him. Um, appreciate it. All right, first, uh, chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Uh, we've been traveling through uh, this book for a few weeks now, and we're really taking um, some detailed time going through these first uh, few chapters because, as you know, these chapters are um, letters that are written to the churches, to the church churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. <clears throat> and um, they were penned by the Apostle John. They are the words of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ to the churches in Asia Minor. And these were real churches at the time when Jesus came and appeared to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And we also know that um, even though these were written to real churches with specific messages that Jesus had to them, there's application to our own lives that can be found within these letters that were written to the churches. And also there's um, historical, uh, historical prophetic things that have been um, wrapped up inside of these letters that um, when you look back over church history, you see... Um, these churches representing different ages throughout the history of the church. And we've talked about those things as we've gone through and, and read and studied. So this morning we're going to be picking back up in chapter 2, verse 18, and we're going to be looking at the letter addressed to the angel of the church in Thyatira. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Lord, I want to give you thanks for this uh, time that we have to be here together with you. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just calm our hearts and our minds before you this morning, Lord. We would be able to set aside the distractions of the world and of, of life, uh, the problems that all of us face, Lord, that weigh on us even as we come here this morning. That can be a distraction as our mind wanders, Lord, from the things that you wish to speak to us today. And Father, we're here because we want to, to know you more. We want to hear from you. We desire to be in your presence. And Lord, as you uh, guide us by your Holy Spirit through these verses, through this letter that was addressed to Thyatira Church and Asia Minor there, Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to see ourselves, to see the areas, Lord, where we're doing good, the areas where we're following, sh following short, Lord, those areas where you still desire, God, to continue to do the work in us and through us that's still yet to be done. Lord, I'm so grateful, God, that you love us and that you are an encourager to us. I pray, Lord, that for those here this morning who are struggling, God, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, Lord, that they would have a feeling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to equip them, God, for the, 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 the burdens that we face in this life every day. We cannot make it without you. Lord, you are our hope. And we love you, and we praise you, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, as we look at verse 18, I said it's, it's, a, it's a letter that's written to the angel in the church of Thyatira. And that word angel can mean uh, messenger and um, <clears throat> We relate that to a title also that is given to the pastor of these churches who were called by God to give the word of God to the people. And Jesus had a specific message for these pastors to deliver to one of these churches, to each one of these churches. And Thyatira is the fourth of seven that uh, um, we have studied through so far, and the, the other three are, are tied up in chapter three. And then after that, we really begin to get into the uh, in time uh, prophecy kind of stuff that I know a lot of you guys are really anticipating as we study through, especially in light of the ever so rapid changing world that we're living in today, um, where we see the fulfillment of things that are even spoken about within this book of prophecy coming to pass before our very eyes. Um, some people have said that, and, I, and, and I, as far as I can tell, this is true, that there has never been a time in where more Bible prophecy is being fulfilled than right now, than throughout all of the history of the church. And, and probably the second greatest time up until now is right with the, 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 the first coming of Jesus Christ and all the prophecies that, were, that, that came to fulfillment and came to pass 
with the birth and the life of Christ, and now with the uh, imminent return of Jesus and the rapture of the church, uh, the nation of Israel having been brought back into their land and established as a nation, uh, the lawlessness and the uh, the stuff that we see going on, not only in our nation, but in our world, <clears throat> we see the unraveling again of prophecy on a very rapid scale, in a rapid way, even today. And so as we, as we look forward to what's coming in the next few chapters and through the rest of this book, it's good to look at these letters because, again, the idea or the, 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 the reasoning behind, behind why God is first dealing with his church, first dealing with his own family is because the Bible tells us that judgment begins in the house of God. And um, the idea behind that is, is that God wants his church, his people purified and holy. He wants us to be an example and a witness to this world that is lost and dying before judgment comes because it's, it's God's will that none should perish. And we have been left here to be a light We've left here to be an example, to be um, an example of God's love. And so this letter, even though it was written to this church, there's application to our lives today. And the thing to know about this letter is the longest of all the letters in regards to verses and and words that were written or spoken, (coughs) it's the longest of the seven letters that was sent to the churches, yet it was sent to the church that was in the smallest city. And I, I like that on this sense because, you know, we really are a small town. This little town that we live in here in Canyon City, or if you live in Penrose or, or Florence, we live in a small town, a small community. We know what it's like to be a part of a small town. And many of us, we live here because we like that. We don't like the hurriedness of the big city life. We, we, we can barely stand the five stoplights that we have that uh, 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 usually delay our travel through town. And my wife, the other day, I was talking to her about uh, joining, and she was thinking about maybe doing CrossFit. And I, I suggested to her that she does do it with a certain person. And she goes, are you kidding me? That gym's clear across town. And, and, and I'm like, it's five minutes away. But, but we all have this small town mentality, and so kind of put yourself in that mindset, even with Thyatira, as you get an idea that, that it was a, a small church in a small town. But the Lord had words for them, words of praise and words of condemnation, words of judgment. And I guarantee you, if the Lord was to write a letter to us today, this small church in this small town, he would have the same thing. There would be things that he could praise us for and things that he would um, judge us for and, and in, in our lives individually. Now, Thyatira uh, was a small military town, in fact. We're a small prison town, but Thyatira was a small military town that was located about 45 miles southeast of Pergamos. And Pergamos was the last letter that we read about, which was... Um, uh, uh, written there uh, and uh, in in the in the um, verses before this, I think in verses uh, five twelve through seventeen was the letter written to the church in Pergamos and Thyatira was a, even though it was small, it was a very strategic city for the Roman Empire for the Roman government, especially the Roman military. In that it was the last line of defense to anyone who wanted to attack the capital city of Pergamos. Pergamos, remember from a couple weeks ago, was the, the, even though it was a Greek city, it was the Roman capital in Asia Minor. And it was the place where the uh, governor, the Roman governor over that region resided. And so if anyone wanted to come and attack the Roman Empire and to try to attack their, their forces there in Asia Minor to get to the capital and to the, um, to the governor there to overthrow the government, they had to go through Thyatira. And Thyatira was on a very heavily traded, uh, heavily um, traveled trade route. And even though it was small in population because of its location, because of a major road that traveled through it, <clears throat> um, it, 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 it was a very busy commercial center. But it was most known, Thyatira was most known <clears throat> for the production of dye. Many different dyes that it would produce 
so dyes to, to, to uh, stain and, and to, for clothing, uh, coloring different uh, clothes. And it was most known for its rare dye of the color purple at that time. And purple was a very desirable color. It was very rare. It was worn uh, most often by royalty or by those who were rich or prominent because it was very expensive and hard to acquire. The city was also known for its large pagan temple that was dedicated to the, to the, uh, to the um, mythological god Apollo, who was worshipped not only by the Greeks, but also by the Romans as the sun, the S-U-N god, which could be one of the reasons why Jesus in this chapter or in these verses, why he introduces and identified himself in the letter as the Son of God. In verse 18, Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. And so we see perhaps that Jesus was using a, a, a play on this mythological God that was worshipped by the people there in Thyatira. Uh, this Greek god, the sun god. And, and, and this church here, it's not known for sure how the church in Thyatira began or how it started. <clears throat> Nowhere in the, in the uh, book of Acts or any of Paul's missionary journeys that have been recorded to us do we show him going there. But we do know from the book of Acts that it's very likely that this church here in Thyatira was began or at least influenced by a woman by the name of Lydia. Um, and it's, it's, it's very possible that she played an important role in the, in the church, and it may have even started in her home. And the reason that we can come to this conclusion is because if you look at Acts chapter 16, you know that if you read there, Paul, we're told in his second missionary journey, uh, went to Macedonia, which is quite a distance from Asia Minor in and, and quite a distance from Thyatira. And he went to Macedonia and he first went to a city called Philippi. <clears throat> and while he was in Philippi, Acts chapter 16 tells us that he met this woman named Lydia, who was from Thyatira. Now, the city of Philippi was about 250 miles from Thyatira. And the reason why Lydia was there is because she had traveled there with her family in order to sell the purple dye that was manufactured in her hometown. And upon her encounter with Paul, we read and we're told in Acts chapter 16 that the Lord had opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And as a result, Lydia and all of her household believed in Jesus and they were baptized. Now this message that Jesus sent to the church here in these verses to Thyatira, you're going to see that it was a message of judgment, a message of a warning of judgment, more than just a message of judgment. It was the Lord appealing to them. And it also explains to us perhaps the reason why Jesus also identified himself as the Son of God, whose eyes, he said, as he gave himself this description, whose eyes are like the flame of fire and, and feet like fine, fine brass. And if we understand this illustration and look at it in context of what we've been studying through, we see that Jesus, first of all, was clearly pointing to his deity. The fact that he was God in the flesh. And God alone is the one who has the right to judge. He's the ultimate judge. And Jesus first refers to himself as this son of God. Pointing to his deity. Literally the fact that he is God in the flesh. The highly exalted one who is worthy to be worshipped. Who we're told in the book of Philippians. Whose name is above every other name. And the one who ultimately possesses the power and the authority to judge. Especially to judge the church. And the fact of the matter is, is that, that Jesus' eyes here are being described like flames of fire. It gives us, an, it gives us this, this idea of God's searching judgment. Fire is always attributed to God's judgment. And the fact that Christ's eyes are seen as fire indicates or, or appeals to that searching judgment of God. And in light of this, Jesus wanted the, the church here, his church in Thyatira, to know that he was looking at them very closely, that he was searching them out. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10, 
God says about Himself. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I, test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his doing. The point is, Jesus, the Son of God, we've talked about this with some of the other letters that we've read and looked at so far, but Jesus, the Son of God, He does not see as man sees. In His eyes of fire, they're constantly searching to and fro, looking into the minds and into the hearts of men, into our hearts into our minds, into the heart, into the mind of our church. He is intimately aware of all that we think. He's intimately aware of all that we say, all that we do, and nothing is hidden from Him. In fact, the secret things we do when no one else is around, everybody has those things. The secret things that we do when no one else is around, and the things that are on the inside that, when, that no one else is, ab- is, is, is able to see, they are seen and they are known by Jesus who is able to see the hidden things. In Psalm, 1, or in Psalm 33, in verses um, uh, 13 through 15, we're told this. It says, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees the sons of men And from the place of his dwelling, he looks upon the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the heart of all, who considers their works. Now that's very specific because not only do we see that God's looking down upon us with his his eyes and, and searching into our hearts and looking into our minds and considering our thoughts, but we also see that God is looking at the actions, the things that we do with our lives. He considers all of our works and he considers in a way that no one else is able to do. He considers our works in a way as looking at the motive behind them. God knows. You see, the truth is, is we can fool one another. We can do things with the wrong intention and with the wrong motive and put it on a smiley face on the outside and lead people to believe that there's something else on the outside that is not truly being reflected on what's going on on the inside. Not only that, we can come to church on Sundays and we can fool one another. We can dress a certain way. We can act a certain way. And outwardly, we can put on this phony appearance of some kind of holiness even when there are severe problems going on on the inside. But Jesus, the Son of God who looks at each one of us even today, even this morning, the Son of God with eyes of fire, He's a discerner of our thoughts. He's a discerner of our motives and of the deeds, and He cannot be fooled. The things that we do. So here in verse 18, as Jesus identifies Himself first to the church in Thyatira, He's letting Him know that first of all, He's the Son of God, who alone is worthy to be worshipped. And He is looking at them in order that He might, He said, I'm looking at you in order that I might judge the inner parts. That no one else can see. That no one else knows. And Jesus speaks about what he saw in them. And doing so, he begins to acknowledge many good things. You see, this isn't always just a bummer. This isn't God saying, okay, I know. You know, I'm just going to share something personal. My birthday was a couple days ago and my wife wrote me a real nice letter. And, and I got done reading the letter, and she said, very, she said lots of kind things. She has to. She's my wife, right? No? <laughs> but, but inside that letter, there was things that she said that she appreciates about me, and so on and so forth. But there were good things. And the truth is, we don't usually see those kinds of things about ourselves. The Bible tells us that our heart's deceitful and wicked, and above all, who can know it? <clears throat> and, and often we relate those kind of verses with a negative connotation, meaning, I don't even know the depth of my depravity. That's kind of how I usually look at that. That I know that there's always some kind of deceitful thought or intention going on because I'm deceitful by nature. Only God is good. 
But the truth is, guys, often we look at ourselves in that negative light in regards to the good things, too, that God sees or the things that God does in us, the things that others sees, where they, they go, you know what, you really, you really do a good job in this, or, or, or you're really good at that. You know, we've all been given gifts by God, spiritual gifts, talents from God. And God sees us as valuable. He sees you as precious. And he sees the good things too. And it's nice when we get those letters from loved ones that point out those good things. It's nice when we receive a word of encouragement. Not so that we're, we're puffed up, but so that we're built up in love. And truthfully, we're called to be that for one another as a church body. It's so easy, it's so, by, so natural to us as human beings to point out the negative, not only in ourselves, but in others. And it's so unnatural to be that encourager, to look for the good in others, and to let them know. But I would encourage our church this morning, I would encourage you as husbands, as wives, as, as, as young people, to look to encourage one another, to look to find the good in one another and in our town, in those in our community, and be a blessing and show God's love through encouragement and through praise. A kind word goes a long ways. And what the Lord Jesus, even though he has some things that are negative to speak about this church, there are some good things that are going on in this church. And Jesus says, I know about them. I know about them and I see them. And I want to, I want to commend you for them. And so in verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works. He says, your love, service, faith. And your patience. And as for your works, Jesus said, they are, they are the last, are more than the first. You see, in this verse, Jesus praised the church for five specific attributes that they outwardly exampled. Look in there, there's this list. Their works and service, their love, their faith, and their patience. Five things that Jesus said, good job, you guys are doing really good. And as with the other churches, we see that Jesus first recognized the works that they were doing. But it's interesting to note that with this church, Thyatira, there was something different that Jesus saw with their works, even from then in comparison to the other churches. He recognized that they were doing something different. There was this additional attribute tied to their works and to the service where Jesus said, <coughs> Excuse me. at the end of verse 19, that their most recent works were greater than their first. Now think about that. He said, the works that you're doing now, they're greater than, than the ones that you were doing. I don't know if that was necessarily in, in size or in effect or if it was in number, but Jesus said they're greater. It's better than what it was. In other words, they were doing more. They were doing something greater. They were serving more. They were doing serving something in, 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 in a greater way than when they had first come to believe. And it's important to point out because the truth is, all too often, as I've seen it not only in my own life as I fought against my flesh, but in the lives of others who have come to the Lord, what I've seen and what I have noticed is that we, by, we, we typically start off in our Christian walk on the right track. And in doing so, we're fired up. People come to the cross. They're forgiven. They met Jesus Christ. They're restored back to God. They're given a newness of life. There's a zeal and there's a fire and there's a passion inside of us. And, and, and we go forth in this race full bore. We're excited to be involved in, in whatever the church is doing. There's 15 things in the announcement sheet, and we're checking our calendar to figure out how we can be at each one of them and not miss a single thing. And all of this is because of this fresh and new kind of love for Jesus, the kind of love that the church of Ephesus, at the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter 2, this is the type of love that the church of Ephesus was commanded to return to. Return to your first love. 
And it's this love that motivates us. It's this love that, that encouraged this church to be involved in whatever they could. It is this kind of love that motivates us to be involved and to serve Christ in any way that we can. And we do so because we rightly believe that time, that the opportunity to serve Jesus, to serve His people, is a joy. It's a blessing. We don't see it as a burdensome thing. However, if we're not careful, our love for Jesus can fade. Our excitement to serve God and to serve others can grow cold. And on the inside, again, remember, the place that Jesus sees, the place that we don't typically get to see into in other people, on the inside, the place that Jesus sees and knows at that time, in these times, we begin to think that being at church and serving is a burden, not a blessing. Consequently, what's the result? Our works, our acts of giving, our acts of service, they are less than when we first began, not more. But this is not how it was for the church or for the Christians in Thyatira. And it's not how it should be for any of us. The bottom line is, the longer that we walk with Jesus, the more we come to know Him, the more we understand Him. And this greater knowledge and this greater understanding of Jesus should have this, this building effect in of our lives. It should increase our love for Jesus. It should increase that desire and that zeal to serve and follow Him more and more every day. Now the second thing that Jesus recognized here and commended the church for in this verse um, that we see was that the fact that he said that they were filled with love. And this explains why their works and their acts of service were more than when they first began. And the point is, it is God's love that is for us, that we've received, that's inside of us, and is given to others. This is what motivates our works. This is what motivates our service and, 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 and it compels us, as Paul said, to serve and to follow Jesus. And when love is flowing out of our lives, the Bible tells us that this, the outflow of love, of God's love, through our lives, this is the greatest evidence that testifies to the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, the love that God has given us the love that has come down from God that is now inside of us and is supposed to be flowing through us. This is the first thing that we are told that an unbelieving world recognizes that outwardly reveals to them that inwardly we have become something different. How do people know that we're different on the inside when they can't see? It's because the love of God is now being manifested outwardly in our lives. And this is one of the reasons for why Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, He said, A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, because Jesus praised the church of Thyatira for their love, I think we can deduct a few things. I think we can deduct that they were long-suffering, kind, humble, compassionate, gracious, and other-centered, considering this is the biblical, de biblical definition of love that is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in, in addition to acknowledging these great attributes, we see that the eyes of the Son of God also saw that the Christians in Thyatira, they had faith. They had works which were greater than when they first believed. They had love, but they also had faith. And this is important, especially since they were a church whose acts of service increased as they grew in the Lord. See, there's a connection between faith and love and works. And that's what we see here. You see, the other thing to notice is that this is important because many people still today have the wrong belief in regards of, of have one of two things wrong in regards to their beliefs surrounding works. The first is, is that some wrongly believe that it's our good works that save us, right? 
or even that if we are not saved by our good works, then our salvation is somehow sustained by our good works. But in Ephesians chapter 2, in many other places in the Bible like it, it clearly tells us, it clearly teaches us that salvation is not earned by works. Nor is it sustained by works. Rather, salvation, the salvation of God is given to us freely. It's a, it's a gift of God's grace. It's His unmerited favor for us. And it is received through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who did the work by dying on the cross for our sins. And the church in Thyatira must have had incredible faith. They must have had amazing faith in order for the Son of God, whose eyes see the secret things, to have praised them for it. You see, the fact of the matter is, or the fact that they had faith also meant that they were not confused by their good works into thinking that they themselves were good. Because of their faith, they understood that their hope was and is in Jesus Christ alone. Because He's the only one that is good. If anything good came out of them, it was because of Him working in and through them. It was because of their faith in Christ. And the fact is that we can know and we can understand God and we can understand His will for our lives only through the exercising of faith. And faith is the key that opens up our eyes to see and it opens up our hearts to believe and it opens up our minds to know Jesus and the more that we exercise faith, the more that we will know Him. Now the last last attribute that that Jesus praised the Thyatirans for there in, 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 in the Christians there, was for their patience. And, you know, I believe this is a very good thing to be recognized for, for your patience. I wish I could say that I was recognized for my patience. But frankly, I don't want to go through the process of, 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 of learning to be patient. I'd rather, I'd, I'd like God to just give me patience. Yeah, right now. You know what? And we live in, in a society, we live in a, in a culture <clears throat> where everybody wants everything right now. And patience is not an attribute we really want to practice. In fact, as I begin to think about it, we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of money and a lot of effort just so that we can get something quicker and go somewhere faster. Yet the word patience refers to endurance. It refers to perseverance. And these are traits that we as Christians are called to exercise in order that God might develop His character in us, is what we're told. Again, it's another way that the world and others around us can see that there's something different on the inside by what's being manifested on the outside. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it tells us this saying, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And patience is something we would all want God to give us, but it's not something that we want developed in us. However, patience can only be developed in us as we're given these opportunities to exercise patience. So we need to take advantage of these opportunities. We need to allow God to do the work in us as He places these trials in front of us so that His perfect work is not only done in us, but through our lives, like the Christians in Thyatira. So in light of all these good things that God commended the church of Thyatira for, it's hard to imagine that there could be anything wrong. But there was. And as we read on in verses 20 through 23, we see this, where Jesus said, Nevertheless, 
I have a few things against you. Because you allowed that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat sacrificed to idols. Things and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. <clears throat> you know, as I read this and see the stern warning of coming judgment, if there is not repentance, <clears throat> especially after reading those first verses where Jesus gave these praise to these Christians for all these things, what it clearly shows me and needs to show us this morning and this is so key in light of the times that we live in where we see so many things changing from light to dark quickly. Because when I read this and I see what Jesus had to say here, what I'm aware of is that there is no amount of love, there is no amount of faith, there is no amount of sacrificial works, there is no amount of patience or any good thing of God that can compensate for the tolerance of evil. If we love, if we have faith, if we have patience, if we have good works, and tolerate evil in our midst, then woe to us. And truthfully, guys, there's lots of opportunity to stand up against evil today in the country, in the state, in the city that we live in. You see, the church in Thyatira, this is what they were doing. They were tolerating evil and they were tolerating evil by permitting an evil woman who had given herself this title of prophetess, they had given her the opportunity to teach the people there in that church false things. And as a result, some of them were led into compromise. It's not likely that this woman was actually called Jezebel. But this name that Jesus referred to her by is certainly symbolic. And it is designed, as this book being a Jewish-minded book, it is designed to direct us to an Old Testament person who was well-known in Jewish history in order to paint a very graphic picture of what Jesus thinks about false teachers and the corrupt and evil things that she and those who followed her were doing. And in 1 Corinthians, or in 1 Kings, excuse me, chapter 16 and 19, we're told about this Jezebel character. We know that she was the daughter of a, of a pagan king, Ethabel, Ethabel, the Sidonian king, and she was given to King Ahab, a Jew, the king of Israel, as a wife. And the thing that King Ahab is noted for or remembered most for, is that he did more, we're told, to provoke the Lord to anger than all of the other kings that came before him. Not a good thing to be remembered by. And this woman, along with her husband, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they led the nation of Israel deep into idolatry. Specifically through the worship of the Sidonian god Baal. In fact, Jezebel, she was the one who put all of the Levite priests, the true priests and prophets of Yahweh, to death and replaced them with the pagan priests of Baal. Now, the worship of Baal, like many of the worship practices of other pagan gods, included sexual acts of immorality. And this was something that the Son of God said that was even being taught here by this woman in this very church. And consequently, some were practicing, some of the members in this church were practicing this idolatry and this sexually lewd acts of immorality. And, and, through, through, and even though all of idolatry is not directly tied to sexual immorality, because even today, idolatry goes on, perhaps in our own life, as we put anything in the place or the position that God alone deserves. 
And when we give our love or our affection to anyone other than God as supreme, that too is an act of idolatry. And, and even though there may be no sexual immorality involved in it, what we know is that all idolatry is, is um, an act of spiritual adultery against God. That's what the Bible says. This is what the Lord is even speaking about here. That you have led these people to commit adultery against me, he says. And this was the core of the offense within the church. In Thyatira, against the Son of God, who has eyes like flames of fire. And he had looked into the heart of this woman, into the heart of those who were following her false teachings. And like a husband is the illustration that we're being given here. Like a husband who has been betrayed by an unfaithful wife, Jesus was seeing the adultery that they had committed against him. That's a graphic picture. And the point is, we the church are called to be the bride of Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. And Jesus is identified as our groom, the one who will return one day for us, his bride. And Scripture tells us that like any husband does, Jesus expects for us to be pure, to be uncorrupt and undefiled for him. And this means that Jesus needs to be the first in our lives. He alone is the one whom we are called to follow. He alone is the one whom we obey. He alone is the one whom we are to worship. He alone is the one who we allow to control our lives. Not anything, not any other person, and certainly not ourselves. He's to be in control. He's the head. So the church at Thyatira was tolerant. And there's a lot of tolerance inside the church today that is, that is deliberately being put forth as a deception in regards to an equal measure of, of saying that it's God's grace. That if you're tolerant, then you're being gracious. And God is a God of grace, and Jesus is full of grace, but Christ is not tolerant of sin and evil. And you can be gracious and not be tolerant. And we're not called to be tolerant of these things. We're called to be gracious and we're called to be loving, but never tolerant. And in light of this, it's important to point out, though, <clears throat> that in verse 21, the Lord said that if he had given this false prophetess time to repent, but she what? She refused. And in light of this, it's important to see that Jesus Again, a characteristic of our Savior is that He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's not simply waiting for us to make a mistake so that He can judge us and punish us and condemn us. Yet many people have this wrong view about God as they think that, that, that God does not love them and that He's only out to get them. But the truth is, is that God's desire is for, as I said, His desire is for all men to repent. Even this woman who He names out, calling her Jezebel, His desire was for her to repent. He gave her opportunity and she did not take it. To turn back to Him. And that's God's heart for each one of us when we sin, when we stumble, when we fall, when we rebel. For our family members who are still lost, those who we love who are, who are still given over to their rebellion and, and are enemies of the cross of Christ, Jesus is giving them time to repent because He's long-suffering, because He's merciful. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, we're told about God. He says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his ways and live. Also in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His, problems, His promises. And that's specifically talking about this coming, His second coming, and His judgment of the earth. He said, the Lord, Paul Peter saying, He's not slack. He's not lazadaisical concerning this promise, as some count slackness. But the reason why He says He's not yet judged what appears to be ready to be judged is because He's long-suffering towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That was the reason for these letters. 
Not so that he can make a tally of their sins and of their mistakes and go, okay, you're done. I'm writing them down and striking a line through it. It's so that they would see and that they would turn. God had been long-suffering with this woman and with those who were following her, yet, yet the woman was defiant, we're told, and she would not repent, and so judgment was coming specifically to her. That hour had come, but even in verse 22, we read that God in His mercy was still giving those who were following her false teachings and following her another opportunity to repent. However, He reminded them, and He warned them, and this is a key thing, He reminded them and he warned them saying that he was the God who searches. Literally, you can see into the hearts and the minds and he knows their thoughts and the motives. And he was again by reminding them of this and bringing this up again, he's saying, listen, I won't be fooled. I won't be fooled by your false acts of repentance. He said, I won't be fooled. And he would really know if they had truly repented. And if they did not repent, they too would be judged according to their works. In fact, the Lord said that if they did not repent, not only would they be judged, that they would also be an example to the other churches. To all the other churches. And the truth is, that this is usually where I find myself. Uh, and for a lot of years, for sure, every day of my life was, was this kind of example. And the truth is, if you've ever been an example of what not to do, Ever been that example? An example of what not to do, an example of what happens when you're outside of the will of God, you know that this kind of example is not something that you want to be to others. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's painful. And in the remaining verses of this letter, Jesus goes on and he says in verse 24, he says, Now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. And again, so by this we see that there was really a division, two groups within the church there, some who had followed this woman to the depths of this as Jesus would say to this doctrine, to the depths of Satan, there, there was some who hadn't and some who had. He said, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So for the other group of people, Jesus had nothing else for them. He said, but this, but hold fast. Hold fast what you have till I come. Endure, persevere, hold fast. And he overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they should be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Pat and Trish, if you want to come back up, and we're going to end with this, and I'll invite the elders up here in just a second. But again, by the end of these verses, we see that not everyone in the church was unfaithful to the Lord at this point. Clearly, there was a group who had separated themselves out from the false teachings, and, and for them, Jesus had this special word. He simply wanted them to hold fast until he came for them. In other words, Jesus says, hold on, I'm coming. Don't relent. I'm coming. He wanted them to persevere in what they had been doing. Hold fast to where you have been and what you have been doing. To persevere in their works and acts of service. To persevere and continue in in love, in faith, in patience, and in their resistance against evil. And then upon His arrival, Jesus promised to reward those who overcome for His faithfulness to Him. You see, the believers in Thyatira were promised several couple of things. Authority over the nations, which probably refers to the fact which we know from the further study into this book that, that God's people will one day live and reign with Christ, which is spoken of specifically in Revelation chapter 20, and to rule and reign by our Savior's side. The interesting thing that Jesus said that He would also give them, if you look in verse 28, He says, I will also give them the morning star. That's an interesting terminology, but to understand what that means, you have to go to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. What's the morning star? Or better yet, who's the morning star? 
And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says that Jesus Christ is the bright and morning star. And so for those of us who hold fast, for those of us who persevere to the end, Jesus says your reward is going to be Him. That He will belong to us. And really what this is talking about is that day when the marriage feast of the Lamb will come to pass where we with Christ will become one and we will be never separated from Him ever again. See, God ex- God's exhortation in closing, if you elders want to go ahead and come on up, and Brandon, you can dim the lights down. The exhortation to these churches was first to repent, to change your mind. And the truth is, it's not just lost sinners who need to repent. We, when we disobey as the children of God, also need to repent. And if we do not repent, if we do not deal with the sin that is in our lives, if we're unwilling to deal with the sin that comes up in our church, you know what? The Lord will judge. And it says here that He may remove the lampstand. And so this morning I close with this. Let us who have an ear to hear, let us hear what the Spirit says to our church. Father, we thank You for this time together this morning. Lord, as we continue to worship you and give you this time set aside specifically for you, God, I pray, Lord, that we would do so with reverence for who you are, knowing that you're the Son of God, the Almighty One who's given his life for us so that we may live and so that we may be restored to you. Father, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to come to you and to pray, a blessing to be able to spend this time together worshiping you. So, Father, as we know that you're here with us, we pray, God, that you would hear our requests, that you would answer them, that you would receive our our worship, our voices raised to you as a sweet offering, Lord, that flows from our heart, which is in love with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys need prayer, why don't you come on forward as there's seats available. Jesus, take all of me.